Hey, um, I wanted to start today uh, with a little bit of just a, a personal update and a story. Uh, as many of you know, my family and I moved here in July from Phoenix. Um, I lived in Phoenix for the past 14 years, uh, which was the longest outside of where I grew up I'd ever lived. So this makes this the biggest move of my adult life and, um, and together for us as a family, for sure. Uh, we moved up here in early July, uh, came up here on a Saturday, preached my first Sunday. Danny went back to Phoenix to finish her last full week at her job there. And uh, graciously, a family here in the church uh, invited me to stay uh, in their house while our house uh, kind of finished up closing and before we could move in. And I was like, okay, I'll stay out of their way. I'll kind of stay in my area. I don't want to be a bother. And then at the last minute, uh, a friend of theirs passed away. And uh, so the family left and went to go to the service. And I figured, okay, I'm not going to be in their way anymore. You know, this is going to be better. You know, it's a beautiful home. And uh, so I got back there uh, on Sunday after preaching. And the next three nights were the worst nights of my life. Uh, I, I could not calm down. I could not relax. Uh, I mean, I, I have twins. I got better sleep when they were little than I got on these nights. And, um, and I figured, okay, maybe it's just Prescott. And so I left on Wednesday, went back to Phoenix, slept great on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and then came back on Saturday, and it came roaring back even worse. And for weeks, this continued. There'd be, there'd be nights I'd get home, and we wouldn't even be having dinner yet, and the anxiety was starting me. After about a week and a half, I figured out, oh, this is anxiety. This is what this feels like. And, um, and it continued for a period of time, probably the latter part of August and September, it started tapering off. Um, I don't have a magic formula, by the way, if you struggle with it. Uh, I don't have this kind of two plus two equals four thing. Um, it was just, uh, it was a really kind of crazy thing. Um, told Danny about it pretty quickly and, um, went to my first elders meeting as a lead pastor, came time to share a prayer request. And I said, should I be honest? What the heck? And so I just kind of dumped out all of that stuff, and they were gracious and loving and laid hands on me and prayed over me and didn't judge me or reject me. And, um, and yeah, that's been, that's been part of my fall. Um, it's, it's scary to say. Um, it's scary to talk about. Um, I wrote a blog about this two weeks ago, and I got 400% of my normal readers that day, more than I've ever had in two years. Um, at people that I've known for a long time coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, I struggle too. I learned that week that one in four Americans will battle anxiety or some other mental health issue in their life. Um, so it's not like you're the strange pariah if you battle anxiety and you're pretty normal. Um, and so it was good to hear me too. Um, the reason that I start with that today is I think many of us either have lived there, are living there, or will live there. Um, maybe it's a product of your circumstances that you're battling anxiety right now. Maybe it's a product of the election and things that you've seen on TV or read online that you're, you're struggling. Um, maybe it's a product of, of things that you're wrestling through inside your head and there's voices and tapes that are playing that you can't stop. Um, or maybe it's just you're struggling. And, and I hope uh, that you hear today, if you hear nothing else, that you're not alone that it's okay to not be okay. And that this isn't a place where perfect people show up to show off their perfectness to other people. One of the problems with this stage is it makes me bigger than I actually am. And so I'm gonna do my best as long as I'm your pastor to constantly remind you that I am not up here because I am more holy or more spiritual or better than anybody else. 
uh, I'm broken and I'm human just like you. And I hope this is a place that you can come and you can invite your friends on their good days and their bad days to be welcomed and loved in the middle of life as it's really happening. And this morning, we're going to dive into a text together that speaks to some of these things. And so to me, it felt really disingenuous to not kind of share my story as if I was above this stuff. And so thanks for listening. That was really terrifying, and I'm glad it's done. Um, So while we're on an honesty kick, um, I thought that I could share that I I really was uh, maybe surprised by something I found in my study this week, and I may have made a mistake. Um, So last week, we ended Philippians chapter 3, and... um, uh, I ended with verse 21 because that's, that's, chap- that's the last verse in the chapter. Um, but I'm not sure it's where we should have stopped. Um, for those of you who don't know, in your Bible, there are these numbers. Uh, they weren't originally in the Bible uh, when it was written. Paul wasn't going, and there's verse 12, and there's verse 13, and there's verse 14. He didn't do that. Those were added later because most of our Bibles are over a thousand pages long, and it's hard to find stuff if you don't have some guides. And so we ended last week on Philippians 3, 20 to 21, which is incredibly hopeful. Uh, we need hope in our world today. It's about how our citizenship is in heaven. We await Jesus Christ, who's going to come again to transform us and who's going to restore all of creation. It was a very hopeful moment. It was a very hopeful tone. Um, but chapter 4, verse 1 is as much the beginning of chapter 4 as it is the stamp at the end of chapter 3. And so I thought that we would start with chapter 4, verse 1 this morning, and then kind of dive in to our study. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 reads like this. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, and he's speaking broadly, so we include women in there too, my brothers and sisters, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you're not familiar with the study of Philippians that we're in, if you've never read the book of Philippians before, if you're new to church, Paul wrote this letter in the first century to some of his best friends in the world. The people in Philippi had walked with Paul through some of the worst seasons of his life. They had been there for him when everyone else walked away. And so he speaks to them with love and affection. And he even says that they are his crown. Now, what's interesting is most of us don't wear a crown. If you walked into church wearing a tiara today... You might get some interesting looks. Um, But in this world, a crown was an award. And it was given to Olympians when they had won an event. They didn't give gold medals. They gave crowns. And so as an Olympic champion, you were a pretty big deal. Way bigger than even Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt uh, in our modern day. And so Paul says that these people are not his gold medal. They are his crown. These people that he's invested in, cared about, served, and he has this concern for them that they would stand firm. And I've talked to a lot of people, and I've stalked a lot of people online this week who seem to be struggling with standing firm, who seem to be like they're standing in the middle of an earthquake, and they're not really sure how to find firm footing. And so this morning, my prayer, if you've been where I've been, or if you're just struggling today, that this message would show you some very practical steps about how you can find firm footing today. And so our main idea is really simple. It's this, that we can only stand firm if we stay focused. We can only stand firm if we stay focused. 
Part of this series and being hope dealers and being people of hope demands incredible focus because our world does all it can to distract us. If you've ever seen the movie Up, then you know this concept of squirrel, you know? And if you haven't seen Up, then you have no one in your life under six. And so, um, and I have several people, um, and so I know this scene very well. There's this dog that cannot remain focused, and he's constantly going squirrel and running away. And for those of us who are older and more mature, we don't have squirrel. We have other things that distract us. I was driving down the road on Friday and literally watched someone almost trip into my driving lane because they were like texting and they, they kind of went this way. And I was like, ah, and so we're constantly distracted. We constantly have things that take our focus away from where it should be. And so this morning, I want to talk to us about how we remain focused. And we'll do that by working through Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So having talked about verse 1, let's jump into verse 2. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The first thing we need to stay focused on is we need to stay focused on unity. We need to stay focused on unity. But Paul is speaking here to some people that he knows really well. And, and what he would have done is he would have written this letter that we now call Philippians. He would have given it to a man named Epaphroditus. He, Epaphroditus would have taken it back to the church. They would have had a gathering of the church, kind of like we're in right now. Epaphroditus would have stood up and read the letter out loud to everyone. So he doesn't say in a private letter to this Euodia and Syntyche, hey guys, you're fighting. You need to get it together. He says to everybody, Hey, Euodia, yeah, you. Hey, Syntyche, yeah, you. Yeah, figure this thing out. And he speaks to them in that public way. And what's interesting is Euodia, her name literally means prosperous journey. And Syntyche's name means pleasant acquaintance. So neither one of them is living up to their name. And Paul speaks to them as women who he's labored side by side with. In Philippi, women had prominent roles both in culture and in the church. This church in Philippi was founded by a woman named Lydia. And so he's speaking to them as people that he served with. And he says, you guys have got to figure this out. And if you've been with us in this series, you know that Paul has been kind of harping on this unity theme for for verses, for weeks for us. In Philippians 2, we read this a few weeks ago. Paul wrote, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. And Paul knew something that we need to know, that our unity is for a purpose and our disunity works against that purpose. You see, we can either fight against one another or we can fight with one another, but we can't do both. If I'm like this with you and we're going at it, then no matter what our cause or mission is, we're never going to get around to that because we're just at each other's throats. And Paul says, look, guys, you can either serve continually with me side by side in the gospel, fighting this fight together, or you can fight one another, but you can't do both. And we know this from our own lives. Churches that have gotten off kilter, and have gotten caught up in fights and splits, 
Those weren't places that people were discovering Jesus. Those weren't places that were sending 15% of their dollars that came in to missions. No, they were churches that were consumed with themselves and their own fights and their own struggles. That's why our unity is not just let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya and be friends. It's not for us. It's so that we can be about the work that God has called us to do. And Paul reminds us in this passage that, that guess what? Sometimes people who love Jesus get in fights. He says in here that their names are written in the book of life. And so sadly, people who claim to love Jesus sometimes act without love towards others. And if you're going to be in this church, I got to promise you, you're going to get hurt. Somebody's going to disappoint you. Somebody's going to do something that frustrates you. Somebody's going to do something that's, that's going to offend you. And in that moment, you're going to have a pivotal choice to either become bitter or forgive. Because bitter Christians are never on mission. Bitter Christians are never on mission. Now, bitter Christians are on a mission. And that's to spread their bitterness everywhere they can. I speak as a recovering bitter person. So I know this. Hurt people hurt people. And they spread that to other people. And so that's why it's so important that we navigate that wound well and don't become bitter. One of my favorite quotes about bitterness is that bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It doesn't change them. It just keeps you in bondage. And so you have to forgive because unforgiveness will hold you back. So for each of these points about where we stay focused this morning, I'm going to challenge you with a question. And in this section, the question is, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? Now notice, I did not say, who do you want to forgive? I didn't say, who do you feel like forgiving? But who do you need to forgive? Forgiveness is complicated. And sadly, there is so much bad teaching in the church on forgiveness that I think many of us are held back because of the myths that we've been taught. So a couple years ago, I wrote an ebook called Forgiveness from Myth to Reality, where I deconstructed some of that bad teaching and then focused on three or four practical habits to help you experience forgiveness. And if you want to learn more about that, there's a link on the screen that you can get that ebook for free. And then if you have somebody who's bitter, just maybe send them an email and say, I thought of you. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Just pass that on. Um, hopefully it'll help. Uh, maybe not that way, but hopefully it'll help. Paul continues in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. The second thing we need to focus on is Jesus Christ. We need to stay focused on Jesus Christ. Now, some of you would say, Scott, of course you're saying Jesus. That's like, you know, Bible, Jesus, prayer, tithe, Moses. Those are the answers for everything in church. Well, what's interesting is what Paul says here. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The word he uses for rejoice in the original language has this idea that it's to celebrate with exuberance. It's an over-the-top celebration. And what's so interesting is that instead of us being people who celebrate with exuberance, Christians are known for being party poopers, not party throwers. We're not known for being people who celebrate with exuberance. And yet in the Bible, there's a story about Jesus. It's actually our first moment with Jesus as an adult. 
He goes to a party. They run out of wine. Jesus makes more wine. The man who planned the party said, why do we save the best wine for after everyone was drunk? Oh, Jesus did it. Interesting. Now, I'm not making a point about alcohol consumption here. I'm just saying Jesus seems to be committed to us having a really good celebration, to us being people who could rejoice. And notice what he says. He says, rejoice in the Lord. You won't always be able to rejoice in your circumstances. And if your rejoicing is perfectly limited to your circumstances, there'll probably be more seasons where you can't rejoice than where you can So Paul doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances always. He says rejoice in the Lord always. That even on those dark days, you are loved. That even on those days where you feel like you have blown it, you still receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. And even those moments where you feel like that God's done with you or he's forgotten you or he could never do anything in that circumstances, he is still at work and you can rejoice in that. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone for the Lord is at hand. This idea of reasonableness is this idea of a gentleness that doesn't have to get its way. It's the opposite of what you read today if you go on CNN or MSNBC or wherever you like to consume your news. Scroll down to the comments. What's happening in the comments on that section about the election is the opposite of what Paul is saying here. It's the, I don't have to win I don't have to prove how right I am. I don't have to bury that person. Here's what Paul understands that we have to understand. We can win and still lose. And if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) If you make it about winning, you will still lose. See, if it's about you being right, if it's about you getting your way, if it's about you being the best, if it's about you showing other people, then you'll still lose. So my question for you here is, how can you rejoice in the Lord today? How can you rejoice in Jesus today? Whether you're on top of the world or you feel like the world is on top of you, how can you rejoice in the Lord today? How can you give thanks for what he's given you? How can you praise him for who he is being in your life? Paul continues in verse six. He says, so do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The third thing we need to stay focused on is prayer. Stay focused on prayer. And I have to tell you, this is the place where I spent most of my week in my study is what does it mean to not be anxious about anything? Because the anxiety I just described to you is not the kind where I get worried if my wife is late and something's happened to her on her drive home. It's not the kind of worry and anxiety at the end of the month if we're not doing well going, okay, are we going to have money to pay our bills? It's not that kind of anxiety. The kind of anxiety I had, I didn't ask for, I didn't control, I didn't want, I couldn't make it come, and I couldn't make it go away. So is that the kind of anxiety that Paul's talking about? Am I now going to be like held accountable for what I didn't create? What's interesting here is the phrase that's used in this passage is do not be overly anxious about anything, not even one thing. Do not obsessively worry about one thing. 
But instead, Paul says, in everything by prayer and supplication, take your request to God. He says, when you're in the middle of that crazy thing that either you're worrying obsessively or you're worrying and anxious and you don't even know where it came from, the first thing you need to do is to take your anxiety to God. Because most of us tend to take our anxiety to other people. We pick up our phone, we call a friend, we text a friend, we post on Facebook, we overshare. And instead, we need to take it to God. I told a friend this week, and they said, Scott, I think you're overstating things. I said, well, maybe. Um, I said, I don't think you're really saved until you've screamed to God. Now, I'm not questioning your salvation today, so please don't, don't write me an email on that one. But, but I think that God wants us to be brutally honest with him. And the reason why I know that is I've read the middle of the Bible. If you've got a physical Bible and you open up to the middle, you typically hit a book called Psalms. And before we had the songs that we sing today, the people of God had these songs, these 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. And 73 of the psalms, which I'm not good at math, but it's about half. Half of the psalms are called laments. They're honest, gut-wrenching truths about where people are at. I've kind of written my own for you today. I want to share it. God, I'm ticked. Where the heck are you? Do you see this? This is terrible. Are you sleeping? Did you leave? What on earth were you thinking? You need to do something. This is wrong. This is messed up. God, I need you. God, we need you. We can't go anywhere else. No one else can solve this. No one else can fix this. You need to show up. We are desperate for you and you are our only hope. That's in the Bible. And that's the nice one. (laughs) And God wants to and desires your honesty. He doesn't want good God, good meat, let's eat. He wants you to be real and honest and raw before him. And instead of you just telling your friend and pouring out your heart to your friend, he wants you to pour out your heart to him. So in your anxiety, take it to him. As I was reading through this, I discovered something else. There's a phrase here. He says, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Now, maybe it's because it's November and I'm excited for turkey and cranberry sauce. But I'm like, are you serious? You want me to thank you for this? I couldn't sleep for weeks and you want me to thank you for that? Are you kidding me? I don't know about you, but I read the Bible sometimes and all of a sudden I find stuff and go, has that been there all along? And I found this and I said, why would on earth would God want me to thank him? And then it hit me. If I don't thank God in the middle of my struggle, then when I find success, I'll think I did it. God wants you to thank him in the midst of your struggle so that when he delivers you, you praise him for it rather than thinking that you did it yourself. And that's why this month we're challenging you with this gratitude muscle challenge that every day you thank God for three things on the good days and the bad days in the the high moments and the low moments so that you discipline your heart and your mind. This verse ends with a really amazing mental image. Paul says, and the peace of God will guard you. The literal meaning of that word guard is that it's like a Roman garrison that protected a city. God promises us that if we will take our anxiety to him, if we take our worry to him with prayer and thanksgiving, that he will guard us, that he will protect us. Now, he doesn't promise us that as soon as you pray, it's gone. 
because that wasn't my experience. He doesn't promise that that it'll never come back. He doesn't promise that you'll never struggle again, but he promises to be with you and to protect you. So my question for you is this, when's the last time you were real with God? When's the last time you were real with God? You took off the mask, you stopped praying churchy, and you just told him what was going on. He wants that kind of relationship and conversation with you. And yes, it's scary. But that's the place you build a real relationship upon honesty, not a mask. On where you really are, not where you're supposed to be. He wants you to be real. In verse 8, Paul continues. He says, finally, my brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We have to stay focused on what is worthy of our focus. We have to stay focused on what is worthy of our focus. Paul seems to imply here that there are things that are worthy and unworthy of our focus. And in this passage, he gives us a great list, a list of things like what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent. This word for excellent is the Greek word for the highest virtue, whatever is worthy of praise. He said, hey, if you're going to think about something, if you're going to obsess over something, if you're going to focus on something, think on these things. A couple weeks ago, I was in the lobby after the service and I was talking to people and a lady came to me and she said, this is my favorite verse in all of Philippians. I'm so excited for you to get to it and for us to preach through it. And she said, I I learned a lot about this verse from riding a motorcycle. She said, have you ridden a bike before? And I said, no, not really. It's not my thing. Um, She said, well, it's really interesting how riding a motorcycle is related to Philippians 4.8. And so I have a friend who's going to help us understand this for a moment. So my friend's going to join us right now. So give it up for my friend Tim here. So Tim, Tim rides a much bigger bike, but this is the biggest they would allow us on the stage. And hopefully the fumes aren't going to cause the smoke alarms to go off. If they do, have a good Sunday. Um... So when, when Tim learned to ride and when this other lady learned to ride, they learned the same principle. And that principle was that you have to pay attention to where you're going because if you don't, you'll crash. There we go. Let's go back, go back to the crash. You'll crash. And, and if you've ever ridden a bike, then what you discover is that people don't pay attention to bikes. People don't watch out for bikes. Is that true, Tim? You know, they don't watch out for it. And so you have to watch out for bikes. And if you're on a bike, you have to watch out for other cars. And while you're riding a bike, there's so many things that could distract you. That thing you just passed or that store you wanted to go visit, or is that a roadkill on the side of the road? Or there's all these things that could distract your focus. But when you're riding a bike, they teach you an important principle. And that principle is this, that you go where you look. And so if you take your focus off the road and where you're going, what will happen, Tim? You're going to go there. You're going to go there. And likely that means you're going to crash. And so each time you see a bike this week, whether you're in Prescott or Prescott Valley or Chino Valley or Dewey or wherever you're from, I want you to think about this principle, that you go where you look. Because it doesn't just apply to Tim on his bike, it applies to you. That what obsesses you, 
What you focus on will determine where you go. And many of you are going the wrong way because of where you're looking. Let's give it up for Tim. Thanks, man. This is super relevant for us because many of us are going the wrong way based upon what we're looking at. Like many of us just watch tons and tons of news, especially right now. Let's go back to the verse. What does the news cover? Whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever's ugly, whatever is not commendable, whatever's not excellent, whatever's not worthy of praise. You see, if you consume all that stuff and that's all you look at, then no wonder you're filled with fear and anxiety. You can't consume fear and anxiety and be filled with hope. You go where you look. So some of you need to turn off your TV. Take a break from Facebook. Stop reading the news. Not because you want to ignore what's going on in the world, but because it's sending you a direction you don't want to go. In the news, there's a, there's a, a quote they say, if it bleeds, it leads. And if that's the case, and then that's all you consume, that's all you're going to be. And that's where you're going to go. There's a song we sing in church, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Guys, we have to learn how to glance at the world and gaze at God. Not because we're trying to ignore the world, but because we know if we reverse that, if we glance at God and gaze at the world, then we're going to go that way because we go where we look. So my question for you is this, where has your focus been? Where's your focus been lately? And do you see the connection between the focus you have and the direction of your life and your attitude and your mood and your response, the way you treat people? maybe even those closest to you. Paul concludes the section in verse nine. He says, whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The last thing we stay focused on is our habits, our habits, the practices and disciplines that we habitually do. A few years ago, I had a privilege of being in a mentoring group with a bunch of other young pastors and we met with an older pastor who'd been around the block a few times who was smarter than all of us. He told us that he thinks there's three things that truly change people over time. He said, people in my church have been changed by messages, models, and mentors. He said, even in my life, I look back and I go, there was a book I read or a sermon I heard or an idea that captured me and it changed me. There was somebody that I looked up to and I wanted to model my life after and I went that direction. There was somebody who began to invest in me and, and pour their life into me and teach me. Paul said in this passage, he was the things that you've learned, the things that you've received, the things that you've heard, the things that you've seen. Those are the things you should put into practice. Guys, it's not about what you know. It's about what you apply and practice. Most of us have heard far more sermons than we've actually applied. We've read far more books than we've actually applied. I'm not sure many of us need more sermons or more Bible studies or more books. We need more application. We need more practice. A few weeks ago, somebody in this church said, Scott, you're really into practices. I go, yeah. They go, let me list them for you. Since you've been here, 
I mean, let's get down on our knees in church to pray, memorize Bible verses, pray a certain time of day, post cards, write down what we're thankful for, post it to Facebook. They go, you're really into practices. I go, you want to know why? Because we're shaped by what we do. And you are far more shaped by what you do Monday through Saturday than the 30 minutes I get in here with you on Sunday morning. And if I can shape your practices, then God can use that to shape who you are and shape what you do. And that's why practices are so important. That's why we have to pay attention to the things that we habitually do. So my question for you is, what practices do you need to renew? What practices have you gotten away from that when you engaged in them, they weren't magic that somehow made you a different person, but they enabled you to get at disciplines, mindsets, attitudes, and actions you couldn't get to any other way. They were a domino that led to certain things that you wanted in your life. What practices do you need to renew? I want to close with this. Uh, my friend Paul is a writer. Uh, he wrote a best-selling book about how to navigate your 20s. And uh, now companies hire him to go in and help them understand their millennial coworkers, employees. He works for schools, organizations. And um, he writes to people in their 20s about how to navigate this season of life well. And Paul said something once that just stuck with me. He said, Scott, we're all struggling. And yet we're all struggling to make it look like we're not struggling. And that's where many of us live. Many of us are struggling and we don't feel like the ground we're on is firm. And our temptation is to walk in a room like this and put on our church clothes and our church face and fake it. And yet, God cannot love our masks. People cannot know us if all we show is our masks. And my prayer for you this morning is whether it was a passage or my story, that you would know that you are not alone. The people around you, as nice as they look, they are not perfect. They don't have it all together. They're probably a mess. But this is a safe place for people who are a mess. And when we come from that place to God, he promises that if we give him, the God of peace, our anxiety, then he will give us the peace of God. And if you're struggling today, you are not going to find what you're looking for by scrolling. You're not going to find what you're looking for by surfing for another channel. You're not going to find what you're looking for in that Christmas bonus or that Christmas present or that next trip. You will find the peace of God when you look to the God of peace. And as you stay focused on him, he promises to help you stand firm. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you meet us here. We are broken people. None of us have it together, and if we do, we're in for a rude awakening. And so, God, we pray that we could come with humility and honesty. God, we pray that we could come as we are. God, so many of us have come today broken people, desperate for mending. God, we've come empty for you to fill us. We've come wounded God, for you to heal us. We've come in the midst of terrible circumstances for you to rescue us. And some of us come carrying the burdens of our past sins and failures, and we've come for you to forgive us and set us free. 
And so as we come just as we are, we pray that we might discover you. Some of us for the first time, some of us for the hundredth time. And we pray that you would enable us to look to you as the one who can give us what we most desperately need. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.